these these FDA inspectors have been followed. Their hotel rooms have been bugged. Um, they are they were given tainted, adulterated water in water bottles that had already been opened. Um, and part of that is to sicken the inspectors and force them to lose inspectional days. This is episode 118 of the Neuro Experience podcast. I'm Louisa. I'm your host. Catherine Eburn, the author of Bottle of Lies, is joining us today to discuss her journey into uncovering the FDA approval process on generic drugs. We'll begin the show by looking at an explosive investigation that exposes widespread unsafe conditions in many Indian and Chinese factories that manufacture generic drugs that comprise nearly 90% of the pharmaceutical drug supply in the United States. Nearly 80% of the active ingredients in all drugs, brand or generic, are made outside of the United States. Generic drugs are, of course, cheaper than brand name drugs, but in her book, Catherine goes deep into the generic drug boom. Today's interview highlights the dangers Americans face in outsourcing the quality and safety of its brand name and generic drugs to overseas manufacturers. Catherine is an investigative journalist who has written extensively and award-winning stories that range from pharmaceutical counterfeiting to gun trafficking to even coercive interrogations by the CIA. Her first book, Dangerous Doses, a true story of cops, counterfeiters, and the contamination of America's drug supply, was named one of the best books of 2005. Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom, is a New York Times bestseller that came out in 2019 and was named one of the top 100 notable books of 2019 by The Times. Here we go with Catherine Eben. Neuroscience, neurology, and beyond. Learn everything you need to know from the best physicians and experts in the world. The Neuro Experience Podcast is a platform to help you understand what the brain is and how it shapes every part of our lives. Every episode comes to you from highly credible sources. I'm Louisa Nicola, medical neuroscientist from Australia living in New York City. Come and take a neuro experience with me. Catherine, so in 2008, you were contacted, I believe, by Joe Graydon, who's an NPR radio host who has a show called The People's Pharmacy. Now, is this what prompted you to write your book, Bottle of Lies? It is, actually. He contacted me with an observation and a question. His, his observation was that um, a lot of his listeners were raising complaints about their generic drugs. Um, they were saying that they had side effects. Um, they were, you know, had been stabilized and now they were having um, adverse reactions. He thought that a lot of their complaints overlapped and had merit. So he brought those complaints to the FDA and the FDA's position was basically that uh, it must be a psychosomatic reaction because if people's pills look different or change colors, um, or when they're switched to a generic, then they, you know, it's in their head, but they think there's something wrong. And Joe Graydon did not accept that explanation. And he posed a question to me that I really could not uh, get out of my head. 
he asked me what is wrong with the drugs. It's so wonderful to like, you know, that you've put this out there because this book, I must say, has made an explosion in the pharmaceutical industry. So I'm so excited to get into it. Let's start off with first understanding what generic drugs are. Mm -hmm. So um, generic drugs are a version of a brand name or original drug. Um, They're usually cheaper. Um, They're not an identical copy, but they um, usually become available after the patent on the brand name drug has lapsed. And most often they're made by generic drug companies who are not given the recipe from the brand company. But what they do is they reverse engineer the drug. They break it down in a lab. They figure out how to remake it often using different excipients, which are different ingredients. Um, And what the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, and they regulate drugs, the Food and Drug Administration requires that the drug be bioequivalent. That doesn't mean identical, but it means that it falls within a range of the same absorption into the blood as the brand name drug. Um, That can be a fairly surprisingly wide range. Um, So they are a version of a brand name drug, but not an identical copy. Would you say percentage wise, it's around like a a 95% copy and then that extra 5% is made from something else that we just don't know? It's hard to say that, and there's no way to generalize. The range that the FDA requires is that it's no more than uh, 25% above or 20% below the absorption into the blood of the brand name drug. But that's a pretty that's a pretty wide range if you think about it. So that means that if you are switched from a brand to a generic, you might have more absorption into the blood with the generic. And then if you switch to a different generic, you may be on the bottom end of that range. So as you know, most of us go to pharmacies and we're often switched each month to a different manufacturer. There can be wide variations within those different products. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but 90% of our drug supply is generic. Is that correct? That is right. So, you know, for example, if you go to the pharmacy and you fill an antibiotic prescription for your child, that is almost guaranteed to be a generic. Um, Yeah. Why is that? Like, why are we, why do we as consumers, when we go into our, uh, our local pharmacy after seeing the GP, why are we switched to the generic brand? Um. Well, in some cases, it's because there isn't a brand version anymore of a drug that we're taking. So brand name companies will stop making the drugs when there is not enough profit in them. Um, But you're also switched to the brand probably because your insurance company is requiring it. Yeah. In other words, if there is a generic available of a medication uh, you have to take, uh, often insurance companies will not pay for the brand. That's so interesting. So where are these, where are these drugs manufactured? Because I know in the book that you speak a lot about um, in India and in Asia. So is this where predominantly most of the generic um, drugs are manufactured? 
Yeah. So this was one of the big surprises to me as I started reporting this story, which is the majority of our low-cost medication is made overseas, um, largely in manufacturing plants in India and China. So for example, 40% of our generic drugs come from India. The majority of um, the drug ingredients that we use are made in China. Um, And this has just been part of what has happened as a result of globalization, that we have really outsourced the manufacturing of our drugs and have lost critical manufacturing capacity to make our own medicine. Yeah, it's it's quite scary because I loved, I, I mean, in your book, you you spoke about how the FDA plans a visit to some of these manufacturing companies, albeit in India, for example. And and I don't know if this is the this is the law, but the FDA, you know, tells them, okay, we're going to come over. They do a planned visit. And I heard you mention the name Peter Baker in other interviews. So how does the how does this all happen? Does the FDA you know, ring the manufacturing company, they plan a visit, and then the manufacturing company basically is like, oh, somebody's coming, you know, somebody's coming over here, let's quickly, um, let's quickly get the, the site ready and make it looking pristine for when the FDA comes here. Is that what happens? So if the FDA, um, the FDA is required to inspect any facility that makes drugs or drug ingredients for the United States. Um, so if you're a drug manufacturer and you want to sell your drugs into the U.S. market, you are by law subject to inspection by the FDA. So when the FDA inspects a domestic plant, they will show up without warning and they will stay as long as is needed. But as years have gone on and the FDA has actually more plants to inspect overseas than in the U.S., um, they were having trouble with the logistics and the organization of doing these overseas inspections. So what they started doing was announced inspections where they will contact the manufacturing facility and say, we want to come and look at your plant. Um, can you, you know, is this a good time for you? So basically those are pre-announced inspections. And one of the things that I uncovered in my reporting is that often those are staged inspections. Yeah. The plants know when the FDA is going to come. And so they clean up, you know, just like you prepare your house. If you know, you have <laughs> guests coming over for dinner. Yeah. Imagine what it would be like if dinner guests showed up unannounced, then oh. they would see what our houses really look like, which might be a bit of a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but the end result of this is that, the FDA's inspections of foreign facilities are not really reflective of the true conditions at those plants. Mm. What they're did, a, yeah, they're getting a whitewashed version of it. Oh, 100%. So that's, that, that in itself there creates a lot of controversy and it's, it's quite scary, especially when you use the analogy of somebody coming over to your house. You know, it's just like when my parents come, you know, they don't tell me when they're coming and my mom comes in and she sees clothes <laughs> scattered everywhere and she starts questioning me. I'm like, well, you didn't tell me you're coming over. So what role did Peter Baker have um, in all of this? So Peter Baker is a young FDA inspector um, who was sort of a rarity inside the FDA. 
because he didn't like these pre-announced inspections. He didn't like getting, you know, what he has described as a dog and pony show when he shows up at these plants. So he figured out, even within the context of a pre-announced inspection, how to find out what was really going in going on inside these plants. So he started looking inside of the computer systems of these plants, which is his right, mm. right? The entire uh, facility and the grounds of the facility are subject to inspection. So he started looking inside the computer systems and what he uncovered is um, extensive evidence of fraud, essentially. The, the facilities are pre-testing their drugs sort of um, screening what the results will be and then figuring out how to modify the, the tests they're going to show to the FDA in order to make sure that the drugs pass uh, the testing parameters. So they would do the pre-testing, see the result, delete those pre-tests, and then run the tests again, tampering with the testing to make sure that the, the drugs pass. But the way that um, Peter Baker uncovered this is because he found traces of metadata in the computer systems, which revealed this kind of pre-testing and a lot of other fraudulent behavior. So basically he was getting a more candid look at the facilities by looking in the computer systems. Wow. This, and, and, what what happened to him? Because I know that, you know, let's look at this, like this is something that not a lot of people hear about as a consumer. And I'm hoping now with your book and with the amount of interviews you're doing and getting it out there, it's going to become more prominent in the world, what's happening within these pharmaceutical industries and all this um, controversy. But what, you know, what we see a lot of is people going into, let's say, um, they're going into Wall Street, they're looking at a hedge fund and they want to get their books out and they're, you know, kind of being a whistleblower in that industry or even the, you know, even in the medical industry where, I, where I'm based, where people maybe want to come in and having a look at any type of fraudulent activity, mm-hmm. albeit with the um, insurance companies and insurance fraud. We don't really see what happens to you know, people like Peter Baker who go in, they investigate this because it can be quite dangerous. Is that correct? I, no- I noticed that you said in some of your interviews, they were, you know, messing with some of the things they were giving him. Was it the, the water they were giving him, um, poisoned water? Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Um, these, these FDA inspectors have been followed. Their hotel rooms have been bugged. Um, mm. They, are, they were given tainted, adulterated water in water bottles that had already been opened. Um, and part of that is to sicken the inspectors and force them to lose inspectional days because they have limited time at these plants. So overseas inspections might be, let's say, five days and can't be extended. So if they lose two of those five days, then that inspector only has three days inside your plant. Um, so, you know, it is really, this is, these inspections are high stake Mm. because if the FDA finds problems at your plant, they can restrict, uh, importation of drugs, which can be a multi-million dollar loss for the company. So, you know, what I really discovered was this, uh, uncovered in my reporting was this very high stakes, uh, cat and mouse game being played out um, in these plans. 
Wow, it's so. Who's who's at fault here? Is it is it the FDA or is it the manufacturing companies? Well, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, first of all, when you talk about manufacturing fraud, I mean, we're talking about companies that are willfully falsifying their quality data in order to sell their drugs into the U.S. market. So there's no question that there is a blame that has to be assigned to these companies. Uh, but on the other hand, the FDA is essentially lining up to be fooled by these companies, right? They're allowing themselves to be duped. Now, you might ask, why would the FDA do that, right? Why would they allow that to happen? Wouldn't they want to know the truth of what's going on in these companies? Yeah. But actually, there is tremendous political pressure to approve low-cost medicine, right? Prices of drugs are too high. They're not effectively regulated. Um, Congress wants to see numbers uh, showing that the FDA is approving more and more drugs. Um, so, you know, the result uh, has been uh, that the FDA is sort of willfully blind to yeah. some of the transgressions in these plans. Now, this this plays well in the fact that when a consumer goes to a pharmacy, they're always, you know, almost 100% of the time switched straight to a generic brand rather than a uh, rather than the actual brand label. And is that because mm -hmm. it's much cheaper? So for the pharmacist, and this is taking, obviously for the audience, taking a helicopter view, the pharmacist may buy the actual brand label drug for $20, you know, and they, you know, at cost price, they may sell it back to the consumer at $25. But if they buy the generic brand, they may buy it for $3 and they'll sell it to the consumer for $25 as well, but they'll be making a larger profit. So is that why they're always switching? The pharmacist is always saying, okay, take the generic? Well, actually, some states have laws that require them to switch the consumer to a generic. So you so don't get a, a choice. Like as a consumer, you don't get a choice right. then. That's In some crazy. cases, you really don't get a choice. So there's, um, there's, there's substitution laws that require a pharmacist to make that substitution if a generic is available. Now, there is a way around that, which is if you don't want a generic, um, your doctor can write a do not substitute prescription, right, yeah. which requires the pharmacy to then dispense it a, a brand drug. Um, uh, but, but even if that happens, insurance might not cover it. Mm -hmm. So what's, let's have a look at what's the difference. Like, I mean, you, let's first, let, actually, let's, let's take a look at active ingredients. What are active ingredients? Okay. So a drug is the sort of key or the essential ingredient, uh, the active ingredient, is sort of the central molecule of the drug. So, for example, Lipitor is made up of uh, atorvastatin is the central molecule. And yeah. a generic has to, um, a, a generic that's going to be approved by the FDA has to use the same molecule as, the same active ingredient as the brand drug. But it can have different excipients. And those are the additional ingredients that manufacturers will use, for example, to help formulate the drug, to help keep it together, to help compress it into a capsule or a tablet. Um, so those can differ. 
uh, but the active ingredient has to be the same. So what started this? You can you can only imagine like what we see as a from a consumer perspective um, and from a market perspective. I know that there was a big. Um, what was the very first explosion in this industry? I, I remember reading something around the fact that this manufacturing company, by chance, there was glass mixed into some of the drugs. Can you talk to me about what that was about? So I think the company that you're referring to is Rambaxi. Rambaxi, and, yes. And Rambaxi, uh, so if we go back to 2004, Rambaxi was the fastest growing generic company in the within the U.S. market. Rambaxi is at, was a um, an Indian drug company and the largest drug company in India at the time. Um, but what happened there is there was um, a whistleblower named Dinesh Tucker. Mm. Um, he was a young engineer who worked at the company and he was working for the research and development director who began to suspect that some of the data inside the company might be fraudulent. So he asked Dinesh to investigate uh, all of the regulatory filings of the company all over the world and find out if the data in it is real or fake. So Dinesh investigated and he basically uncovered the company's secret, which is they had been falsifying data in uh, for applications in over 40 countries, 200 drug products sold with falsified data, quality data. And, you know, this, this falsification of data is not a little thing. It's basically falsifying the data to make the drugs look okay when they're not. Mm. So that has huge implications for consumers. 100%. Um, and once... Once um, Dinesh's findings were disclosed to the company's board of directors, he was essentially forced out of the company and he ended up becoming a whistleblower. That led to an eight-year investigation in which uh, Rambaxi finally pled uh, guilty to seven felonies for faking data. Wow. Yeah. That's absolutely unbelievable. You mm -hmm. mentioned, you said the word Lipitor before. Now, there's a, a long simmering medical debate over a class of drugs used to lower cholesterol. And uh, when I read this article, I think it was uh, released last year even, um, the media was calling it the Statins War. So, mm -hmm. can we talk about Lipitor? Sure. Um, what, what, what is striking about um, Lipitor in the context of my reporting in the book is that um, Lipitor is the biggest selling drug of all time. It's a $10 billion a year drug. Mm -hmm. And um, the FDA had information from Dinesh Tucker that Rambaxi had committed fraud on a vast scale. And yet, even with that information, they, for a lot of complicated reasons, most of them not very good, the FDA approved uh, Rambaxi's application to be the first generic drug company to make Lipi a version of Lipitor, which was called a Torvastatin. Mm. And uh, the, the company, Rambaxi, made a fortune. They made 
uh, I think it was $600 million over a six month period selling generic Lipitor. But it turned out uh, that their generic Lipitor had particles of glass in it and had to be recalled. So, you know, if any of your listeners were uh, were patients on a, on a brand name Lipitor and were celebrating who had Lipitor first went <laughs> generic, uh, they were probably taking Rambaxi's version, which ultimately was recalled because it had particles of glass in it. Yeah. What's your, uh, what is, what was the hope of this book? And, you know, you were doing, you were an investigative journalist doing this book from 2008 you know, now yeah. in 2020, it's been 12 years. What's, what was your, what, what's your hope of, of releasing this book and your previous book? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that book was uh, dangerous doses. Yeah. You know, um, I would say as, as an investigative journalist, um, I very much subscribe to the view that the best disinfectant is sunlight. <laughs> um, you know, we believe in exposing the truth. Yeah. Um, that's really the motivation here. And obviously for patients, um, the, the, you know, it could not be higher stakes, right? Because we all depend on these drugs. Uh, and in fact, for many people, their lives depend on drugs and having drugs of high quality. So, you know, the idea that companies would be committing fraud and selling purposely selling substandard drugs in order to reach in order to achieve a larger market share you know to me that just that has to be exposed mm. um so i think the thing that kept me going through all these years of reporting was thinking that you know really i needed to tell this story and if i didn't tell it probably nobody else was going to yeah. Um, so that's really the motivation. We're becoming more aware because I, I think around six months ago or maybe a year ago now, there was this documentary released on Netflix and it was the first real big insight into the medical device company and how mm-hmm. somebody, Elizabeth Holmes, I think it was, and how people go through the whole FDA approval and what happens there. And so I remember at the start of the film, it says the medical the pharmaceutical industry is actually worth more. It's, you know, it's generating more of a, um, I think like, I don't know how many billions a year compared to the device company, but we just didn't see the difference between the two and what goes on behind closed doors. And I just love that people are out there exposing the truths because at the end of the day, we do, you know, I've got a 67-year-old father who uh, six months ago he had um, he had a stroke. And so now we're getting into a lot of the, you know, he's taking eloquence now. And I noticed, and this is actually how I came across your book because, you know, what you don't really look into something until something happens to to yourself. And my, I remember going to, you know, I've been going to all of his appointments. I remember just being at the the pharmacist. I was questioning her because she kept switching us. She kept saying to us, no, um, take, I don't know if it was Eloquist or there was another drug that she just kept forcing us to get the generic. And I was like, you know what, I've got to be real. I I couldn't understand why. And there was a reason behind it. That's how I actually came across you and your book. And I was like, this Mm -hmm. is unbelievable. And so let's, what about people who are not, uh, who don't really know too much about this? They don't really know a lot about pharmaceuticals and they just want to have 
a better life and they want to be told the truth. What do they, what do consumers need to look for when they're looking at their um, at, at their drug packet? Okay, so that's a great question um, because this is the question I get most often. I actually created a resource on my website, which is called um, a guide to investigating your own drugs. Wow! So, what's um, your website? I'm going to link all of this yeah, in the show notes. Great. It's um, so it's uh, KatherineEban.com. Just okay. my name.com. Yeah. And um, it's it's a guide to investigating your own drugs. Um, and basically walks consumers through sort of what they should pay attention to and what they can look for. But the number one suggestion, which is super simple, but super important is to look at the manufacturer. Most of us go to a pharmacy or dispense drugs and most people couldn't even tell you who made that drug, right? They don't look at who the manufacturer is. Now, why don't we look? We don't look because the FDA has told us, and we believe it, that there's no difference between any of these manufacturers, right? If they've approved a drug, it's equivalent to the brand, the generics are equivalent to each other, but in fact, there are significant differences between the ethical behavior and the manufacturing excellence of these uh, generic drug makers. There's huge differences. So. If your drug isn't working, you need to know who made it because you need to switch. And if your drug is working, you need to know who makes it so you can stay on it and you can actually request a certain manufacturer. And I do that all the time. Yeah. So there are manufacturers whose drugs I won't take um, and ones that I specifically ask for. Mm. So you're saying as a consumer, once we look at the... um, look at the label, look where the manufacturer is, maybe Google, see if there's been any bad press about them, see if it's, you know, where they come from, who they are, what they do. Okay. Yes. But, but one problem, and it really needs to change, is that consumers don't really have um, any way to know where their drugs are being made, right? They don't know, you know, if you, if you go into a supermarket You'll buy a box of cereal that has more manufacturer information on it than your prescription drugs because your cereal box is going to tell you where it was made, what country. And that information is not available for your drugs. So even if you find out who the manufacturer is, you're still not really going to be able to figure out where the drug was made. And that needs to change. I mean, there should be country of origin labeling, I think. Yeah. It's so funny because you mentioned a lot, you know, uh, it's so funny. We, I think I heard you say something around, you know, we have more say over where we want to get our meat from. You know, we go outside and we, yeah. we want more organic, um, organic products so we can go and order it from somewhere. But we just, uh, something that is so serious, like like our prescription drugs, we have no say where it comes from. We are, hardly have any information on it. The, the, the average consumer has no idea what to look for, what it is. They just say, the GP, you know, they just go to their GP, they, they trust in that, they just take it. And then sometimes, more often than not, there's, there's repercussions of that. I know you've mentioned that there's some people who have experienced, you know, once they switch to a different drug, they experience maybe um, epilepsy or they get sick from a drug and they just don't know what's going on. And there can be adverse effects. That this, I, I know for a fact that um, when I was doing a study on 
drug-induced schizophrenia. There was a lot of people yeah. who go on to a certain drug and they become basically like like zombies and brain dead. And it's that I think that there's got to be a reason why. And I haven't looked too much into the pharmaceuticals of that, but now that I'm talking to you and, I, and I've read your book and I'm becoming really intrigued in this field, there's got to be a reason why that things like that occur, why someone is diagnosed with schizophrenia, they get put on X amount of drugs, um, they have to take it X amount of times a day, but why are they turning into a vegetable, for example? There's got to be well, a reason. You know, one important issue that um, I should flag here is the these low quality generics um, have a, can have a very serious impact on um, on patients who have conditions where small variations in dosing make a huge difference. So the kind of drugs we're talking about are, are narrow therapeutic index drugs. Cardiac patients take those, neurology patients, psychiatry patients. Um, and if the dosing is just a little off, it can have a gigantic impact. So that may be some of what you're identifying there. Yeah, absolutely. And is there any other class of drugs out there that you think have had major adverse effects on the general public? Well, you know, I would just say that for what I expose in my book, it really cuts across all kinds of medication categories. But the issue is basically, um, you know, it's low-cost manufacturing. Okay. Um, low-cost overseas manufacturing. Um, and, you know, as, some, as an FDA consultant put it to me, every consumer knows that there is a difference between uh, cheese whiz, craft, and artisanal cheddar right? Everybody gets that there are differences in quality, but her contention is the same holds for drugs, you know, that essentially our drugs are being made in pharmaceutical sweatshops overseas with low quality ingredients and manufacturing shortcuts. Mm. Look, Catherine, I'm very excited. I hope um, in the future you release a third book because this has been amazing and it's so amazing to see how it's grown since the, the release last year. What do you see next in the pipeline for you? Well, um, the paperback of, of uh, Bottle of Lies is coming out on uh, June 23rd. Yep. I have a TED Med talk, which will be a sort of encapsulation of this, which is also going to come out. And... Um, Lately, I've been reporting um, for Vanity Fair on the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. So, uh, and and your listeners can follow my work um, on Twitter at uh, Catherine Eban. Absolutely brilliant. And we can get your book everywhere on Amazon and local bookstores. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you so much, Catherine, for being part of the Neuro Experience podcast.